And welcome to the Synopsis Podcast, where we break down the history, economics, culture, and geopolitics surrounding the world's other superpower. I'm Michael. And I'm Sam. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about power within the Chinese Communist Party. Who has it? Where is it? And ultimately, what influences the actions of the Chinese political elite? Looking at China from the outside, it would be easy to assume that all the power in the government rests in the hands of the General Secretary, the head of the CCP. The truth, as you may have already guessed, is more complicated. Loyalties are frequently divided within the party as factions coagulate around powerful elites who bargain and connive behind closed doors for influence. This type of factionalism has always been the norm in the CCP, serving as a form of checks and balances or Game of Thrones for the ruling class. Xi Jinping, the current general secretary, has recently gone on a spree of purges against his political opponents, the likes of which haven't been seen since Mao's Cultural Revolution over 40 years ago. To understand the rationale behind these brash moves, we first must take a moment to explain what exactly the CCP is, what it isn't, and how it wields power. So the first thing to understand about the CCP is that it is technically a separate entity from the government of China. Now, since the inception of the modern Chinese state, China has always been governed as a one-party state under the CCP, but these are very technically separate entities. The best way to understand it would be as if positions within the U.S. federal government could only be wielded by those who are card-carrying members of the DNC-RNC. So in the West, we take elections for granted. They're very clear processes. The votes are tallied, and eventually the winner is decided. However, in China, because of the opaque nature of the party politics that end up going into deciding who wields power, the decision is much more opaque to the outsider. All of the decisions in terms of who gets power within the government of China are done behind closed doors, and it is this jockeying for power, factionalism, uh, patronage, etc., etc., that makes the process very unique and hard to understand. Right. So what exactly does the party control? If you are at the top of the CCP, if you occupy a prominent position, what can you actually do? Uh, The short answer is they can do everything, but they don't actually attempt to. The Communist Party of China is virtually omnipresent in Chinese society, but it is not micromanaging. Uh, The lower you are down the economic totem pole, the less attention you are going to receive if any at all. Uh, It's, for example, a lot easier to just open up a small restaurant on the streets of Shanghai than it ever would be on the streets of New York. Yeah, but as as you continue to grow, uh, the cutoff is 50 employees, you have to become more and more entwined with the CCP. So um, at 50 employees, businesses are required to have a liaison between their business and the CCP to ensure that their capitalist enterprise is operating within communist principles. (laughs) And, um, you know, all the employees are adhering to right think, all that sort of stuff. You're not making trouble for the CCP, etc. Um, but really, as the smaller and smaller you get and the less political noise you are making, the less the government really pays any attention to you at all. So that's the economics in a nutshell. Of course, there's also the People's Liberation Army, which is actually a wing of the Communist Party. It is not technically an instrument of the Chinese government. It's worth mentioning, actually backtracking real quick, that the uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government have different flags. 
<laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the the Chinese flag, the actual Chinese flag, the one that you'll see on like Apple emojis and everything, that's the that's the red banner with the five stars. But arguably the more important one is the flag of the party, which still has the emblazoned uh, hammer and sickle up in the top left corner. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and and just kind of driving that a uh, few points ago home um, in terms of that the CCP doesn't really notice you until it does. Um, the, this is not strictly an economic phenomenon. This is definitely a political phenomenon as well. Um, for instance, if you're in Tibet and you know small enough teaching ideas of Tibetan independence and stuff like that, you might not really hear anything from the CCP until the full army shows up with tanks, etc., to squash your insurrection. It's sort of a very binary thing in terms of you aren't you aren't a problem until you are. And once you are a problem. Yeah, the the amount of force that's brought down on you is pretty disproportionate. Uh, you, you're allowed to voice a little bit of discontent if you are, like, for example, with the recent stuff coming out of Inner Mongolia, that's an ethnically Mongolian area area where they don't really speak Mandarin as their first language. They want to keep speaking their language in schools, and the Chinese government's saying, well, you have to teach in Mandarin now. Uh, some people voiced their discontent, but it wasn't until they actually began a strike from school and started demonstrating in the streets that the army rolled in. Um, but now it's like, now now it's a pretty, it's taken the shape of a very determined crackdown now. Yeah. So, so Mike mentioned the PLA, um, which is a wing of the CCP. Uh, just a couple of other organizational notes about the CCP, since this will become relevant later on in the episode. Uh, the CCP is headed at the very top by the general secretary, in this case, Xi Jinping. Think of it as a pyramid. At the very bottom, there is the National Party Congress. This has over 2,000 members. This is really um, best imagined as a rubber stamp legislature that basically okays the decisions that were already made by the Politburo, specifically the Politburo Standing Committee, which is currently nine members. If, there, if there's one particular term that you should remember, it's the Politburo Standing Committee. The Politburo Standing Committee, sometimes called the sitting committee because the members can be so old. Uh, but uh, <laughs> these are the nine most powerful people in the country country uh, and for a long time were considered uh, untouchable uh, by different forms of political purges since Mao. Maybe not during Mao's time, but since Mao. Um, yeah, you'll, you'll be hearing since Mao a lot in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so these different members control different aspects of China. You know, it, it could be the Central Military Commission, which is basically the commander in chief. You can get people that control the economy, just all different information, politics, the security. secret police. Yeah, that like think those big overarching things that need a single person controlling them. Anyways, uh, so I think we mentioned a little bit, but how exactly do these officials get into positions that they do? Like th this is key to understanding the incentives faced by different Chinese leaders. How do they win elections? We are familiar with how we have elections in the West, but in China, it's basically just a consensus built um, election on the part of the party itself behind closed doors. Again, since Mao. Um We'll discuss this a little bit more, but um, that sort of consensus view of leadership took place after the disastrous policies of Mao, specifically the Great Leap Forward, which caused the death of roughly 40 million Chinese. Um, and it was seen as a result by the CCP that it was dangerous to concentrate all this power in one man. So again, communal leadership up until Xi recently. Yeah, that, that's actually something important to hit on real quick because I think a lot of people in the West uh, look at Chinese history and come away with this understanding uh, that it's it's very similar to maybe Stalinist Russia. And, and for a long time, maybe you could argue that it was, uh, especially underneath Mao. You would just think that all the power was solidified in one person. But the reality, again, has always been that 
even even Mao Zedong had to compete with different other uh, politicians for influence within the party and couldn't just get away with doing whatever he wanted. Yeah, exactly. And we touched on this in our first episode, but the Cultural Revolution, uh, which followed the Great Leap Forward, was in one respect you know, I intended to usher in a new glorious communist era full of the principles needed to create the perfect communist society, et cetera, et cetera. But in another more practical sense, it was done as a direct result of Mao's waning leadership Paris. Um, because of the failure of the Great Leap Forward, he was beginning to be marginalized. So he, in one respect, set up the Cultural Revolution as a way to purge, sideline, etc., his political opponents who were gaining power after his failures. Right. So a quick disclaimer about the rest of the episode, because as we've mentioned, the Chinese political process is one of the most opaque in the world and trying to guess what's going on is sort of a fool's errand unless you just have a mountain of evidence. A lot of what we're going to be talking about here is very anecdotal. A lot of it's going to be just stories and we're going to highlight a couple themes uh, to bear in mind that are going to pop up again and again here. Uh, I'd say the most important one is probably the necessity of patronage networks, like the ability to dole out favors if you're a politician. That does cross with meritocracy in some cases, but th those two things really interplay quite a lot. The, the second theme to keep in mind is that centers of power are generally not concrete. Uh, things such as the amount of favors that you're able to give out and the amount of personnel behind you who are willing to support whatever it is that you're doing, that can ultimately be a lot more influential than your official position in any particular office, even at the very top of the party. The general secretary at times has been undermined by people from outside the Politburo structure who just had more influence. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. And the third thing I want to highlight is this need for factional support, which falls directly out of the ability to dole out favors. Uh, you have to build coalitions. You need a lot of people behind you. Uh, and, and that corruption definitely that, 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 help, that enables people to climb the ranks of the party, that tends to glue them together because the person who granted you a favor, a job or an office, money, whatever it was, if they go down, you are going to go down with them because Corruption, as commonplace as it may seem, is still not acceptable at its face in China. So you don't want to get tangled up in that, and you really have a strong incentive to stay with whoever got you uh, ahead in the first place. So if you are a Chinese leader, you really need to worry about keeping your allies. You need to worry about coup d'etats from the elites. And uh, as Tiananmen Square looms large even today in their psyche, you need to prevent revolutions from below. To put legs on a couple of things Mike said— um, even though the centers of power are much more malleable than they are uh, in Western democracies, that doesn't mean that positions of power within specifically the government don't actually confer power as well. For instance, uh, Xi, one of Xi's most recent high-level purges was against the head of the secret police within China, and this was seen as a means to uh, prevent this official who was not part of his entourage from exercising the state power of the secret police in order to undermine Xi's faction. So even though he was sort of on the outs, the, he did still wield official power within the government of China and was thus an actual threat. So these are the positions of power are so much more malleable than they are within the West. The guy that you're referencing was ahead of what's essentially the Chinese Gestapo. And in order to be a threat to Xi Jinping, you don't have to be a threat to Xi Jinping directly. You just have to be a threat to his network and his underlings and be able to catch them up in corruption probes or whatever. Uh, you could disappear people that are important to him. And that's really how uh, higher level officials tend to go after each other is you, you focus on taking down their lower networks first, which ends up providing you with a lot of evidence and clout for the investigation. Uh, it's worth noting that the guy that you're mentioning, 
uh, he was part of Jiang Zemin's faction, who looks like a toad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to, there's going to be a lot of Chinese names in this episode, and we're trying to think of ways to make it a little easier to memorize. Uh, Jiang Zemin was a big leader in the 90s, and he looks like a toad. Just remember that. And that's not by my estimation. That is, that is by the Chinese internet. There's like this weird form of toad worship because people seem to like Jiang Zemin, and it's just, it's a term of endearment, basically. He was a member of Toad in the Hole, Jiang Zemin's faction, uh, which is contrary to Xi, um, and and, and we'll, we'll move off this point in just a second, but like the last thing to reiterate is that you are powerful within the CCP and in, in China at large by having a large base of supporters. So if a, the head of the secret police is able to attack those beneath you, the, your supporters beneath you through uh, covert mechanisms, that poses a direct threat to your leadership, even if it's not directly assaulting you. All right. So I think I think now's a good time to maybe talk a little bit about Mao's failures and the cult that's sort of survived since he since he's passed away, because it highlights a lot of this uh, this flexible, flexible, difficult to nail down nature of the centers of power in China. Uh, Mao Zedong, as you may know, did defeat the Japanese in World War II. And World War II was a horribly bloody conflict, especially for the Chinese. They had the second highest death toll of any other country uh, in the conflict right behind the Soviet Union, right? So this is like the worst conflict in human history and China's like up there among the worst hit. Mao's policies were directly responsible for killing over twice the number of people uh, in China that World War II did. And yet his face is still on the front of every banknote in China. His face adorns public squares. Like, yeah, you don't really, it, you don't really go around insulting the guy. Like people pay homage to him constantly. Like they have holidays centered around him. You get the point. Yeah, and if you're a student of history, you'll notice that this stands in direct contrast to the man that Mao sort of modeled himself after Stalin. And after Stalin's death, and this is a little far afield historically, but um, his successor, uh, Khrushchev, instituted a policy of de-Stalinization where he worked to unwind the cult of personality behind Stalin. Obviously, the Soviet Union is no more, and uh, China is still ostensibly a communist country, so that's a difference there. But even before that dissolution of the Soviet states, Stalin did not loom as large as Mao did. However, in spite of all the clout that the man had, he still had to compete with other officials. Like, he, he was celebrated, but the failures of his policies were so obvious they couldn't be down. They just, they couldn't be buried completely. And there were people who... Uh, dissented within the party, most notably Deng Xiaoping, who would later become the little tank man of Tiananmen Square. He was the leader of China in the 80s. Uh, but at this time, he was working to correct a lot of Mao's economic mistakes. And thus, when Mao made his resurgence under the Cultural Revolution, he purged Deng. Deng was in hard labor out in some tractor farm for a while. Um, but uh, again, Mao wouldn't have to bother doing that if Dung wasn't a threat to begin with. So like, so, so this points that e even someone as central and as powerful as Mao still had to contend with this interplay of factional politics and patronage and meritocracy. No, that's exactly correct. Like by definition, the fact that these supposedly all powerful leaders are concerned with those, with the rival factions means that they perceive them as a threat. So yeah, it's, it's really like as cut and dry as that. Even if you are, the number one guy within China, that doesn't mean that the number two or three, four, et cetera, you know, still doesn't pose a threat to your leadership and might not come up right behind you and put a knife in your back, figuratively speaking. Yeah. Uh, and on that note, uh, Mao Zedong helped solidify his rule with this group of people known as the Gang of Four. His wife was included, a few other people, and they, they were 
supposedly the most powerful people in the country uh, under Mao's rule. But within a month of Mao dying, that gang was gone, like completely ousted from power. Uh, and very quickly, Deng Xiaoping, future little tank man, he comes back into the picture in a big way. He becomes the next major Chinese leader. What's interesting about Deng Xiaoping and how this really is going to, I think, help solidify your understanding of where power lies in China, Deng Xiaoping never occupied the seat of general secretary. He never occupied a senior leadership position, really. I mean, he he became the commander-in-chief at one point. He occupied the, the Central Military Commission. But what Deng Xiaoping actually did was basically create his own extra-legal advisory commission. He created this himself. It only lasted about 10 years, but it was regarded as having more power and influence than the standing Politburo itself. Yeah. And during this time, Deng received the title of paramount leader, which is a little bit lost in translation, but essentially means the most powerful person in China. And again, this let's let's really drive this point home and it's a great illustrative example the number one person in china by everyone's admission was neither the head of the ccp nor the head of the government of china and was still the top guy so it just really goes to show you that the nature of power within china within the ccp etc is very malleable and does not have one fixed center yeah if you if you opened up a little chinese matryoshka that's one of those russian nesting dolls uh and it, just, it was just like a, a, a sequence of the famous Chinese leaders from the last 50 years or so, you would see Deng Xiaoping sandwiched in between Mao and Jiang Zemin. It, would, it wouldn't be, the, it wouldn't be the, the, uh, then general secretary who Deng actually later forced to abdicate, uh, in the wake of Tiananmen Square. So like, so then how did Deng Xiaoping get all this influence? Uh, a, a big reason was that his economic reforms were fairly successful. So he had a lot of clout coming out of that. And the other really big thing was that he was on the winning side post Tiananmen Square, which is a little bit beyond the scope of this episode, the ramifications of it and everything. But, uh, just be it known that the, Many heads in the Politburo sided with the student protesters or at the very least were sympathetic to reforming in the style that they were calling for, whereas Deng Xiaoping wanted to just crack down. And it was ultimately those hardliners that prevailed and anyone who didn't go along with that was purged for creating a rife within the party. So that's um, that's one little illustration of how Deng uh, solidified his influence. Right. So as we had discussed a little bit, um, since the failures of Mao, the CCP writ large has been very concerned about centralizing too much power within one man because it was Mao's consolidation of power that allowed him to undertake the disastrous policies of the Great Leap Forward. Um, And really, all of the leaders since Mao have operated within a communal framework for leadership. Now, this has been recently upended with Xi Jinping. Um, There's numerous examples. Notably, he extended the term limits for presidency indefinitely, allowing him to continue to occupy the position that he currently wields. Um, And he has also recently... uh, Xi has inscribed what's known as Xi Jinping thought into the Constitution of China. The only other leader of which has their thought in the constitution is Mao. There's Mao Zedong thought, Deng Xiaoping theory, and then Xi Jinping thought. And and a couple scribbles from Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao as well. <laughs> but not like thought, but it's not thought emblazoned into like official mm-hmm. party doctrine. doctrine. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is something that gets definitely lost in translation, like, oh, thought theory, what's the difference? In the actual Chinese characters, there is there is a gulf between these, and it is really significant. And a lot of this, the rest of this episode, we're going to be talking about Xi's consolidation of power, um, you know, particularly through anecdotes, but very indicative ones. What is Xi Jinping doing? How is it different? Why does this matter? Uh, he is, some observers would say, 
in a strong in the strongest position any Chinese leader has been uh, since Mao Zedong. And you're going to hear that honestly. You could just attach that moniker to Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping, something something since Mao, because he's pretty much <laughs> he's pretty much uh, yeah like the biggest thing to happen since Mao Zedong in a variety of ways. Uh, like, like you said, his thoughts on the Constitution. He now has unlimited uh, term limits allowed for himself as president. Yeah, he's purged the most uh, most party members since Mao. He's also purged yes. the highest ranking party members since Mao. Yes. That is the token achievement. That That's like the main thing that Xi Jinping has been running on. It's been anti-corruption because corruption for a long time has been this big, big concern in China. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so real quick, um, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit at the top of the episode, but if you were to draw a Venn diagram of CCP members and then CCP members who are corrupt, it would be one single circle. There would be no uh, diagram. <laughs> yeah, there would be no diagram. It would be a circle. Um, <laughs> and this is almost by design. Again, Corruption is not looked on favorably, but due to the single-party nature of the state, it's just a simple fact. You you get power through corruption, and then you use that power to be corrupt to make money, and it's a you know, very, very self-fulfilling cycle. Um, so that's why Xi's anti-corruption purges are so so indicative of part of his larger strategy. Um, I just want to read a single quote from The Economist. It's very indicative of um, kind of the strategy that Xi's been pursuing. Uh, A court in Beijing sentenced a critic of Xi Jinping to 18 years in prison on charges of alleged corruption. Ren Jinkua, a property tycoon, went missing in March after calling Mr. Xi, quote, a bare-naked clown in an essay critical of his response to COVID-19. China has been criticized for using corruption charges to silence dissenters. Yeah, it's interesting that he felt comfortable saying something like that to begin with. I have, I'm not sure if that was at the very beginning of these corruption purges or not. Criticism of the government from the bottom rungs of society is routinely squashed, but party squabbles, they aren't necessarily publicized, but they're not going to stop you from doing it behind closed doors. They just love to showcase uh, this veneer of unity within the party. Although she's been breaking that down as well, as we'll discuss in a little bit. So we mentioned earlier that... Xi Jinping, near the start of his campaign, purged this guy, Zhou Yongkang, who was, again, the head of the Chinese Gestapo, a former Politburo member. In years previous, he would have been untouchable. This is a precedent-shattering move from Xi Jinping to go after this guy, and he he jailed him for life, so this is a big deal, uh, and signals a willingness for Xi to go after you no matter how big you are particularly if you are not within his clique. <laughs> and that guy was definitely not in Xi Jinping's clique. Someone else who is not in his clique is his current number two man and current punching bag, Lee Kachung. Lee Kachung was an alternate for the general secretary when Xi Jinping was ultimately chosen. Again, Lee Kachung was, I, I think, Jiang Zemin, toad in the hole, uh, Jiang Zemin's uh, favorite choice. So you can see how... Uh, the faction that formed around Jiang Zemin still posits a threat to Xi Jinping, and thus she is going after current punching bag Li Keqiang. Li Keqiang and she have very differing views on the economy. Uh, they've undermined each other's messages in public at different points in time. Like she wants to paint this picture that they're doing fine in the wake of the coronavirus, and they're very close to achieving a moderately prosperous China. That's actually what he calls it. That is his goal a mo- to create a, a- moderately aim, prosperous aim high, country because we're, <laughs> because we're still supposed to be socialist, guys. Come on, we can't be too obvious with it. But no opulence, no opulence allowed. <laughs> I, 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 I wanted to, a spicy joke really wanted to come out of my mouth, but I couldn't think of one. Uh, okay, so so Lee Kachung uh, has been promoting more of a street vendor economy, yada, yada, yada. It's not really important. What is important is that they disagree. 
What's a little more important is that she went behind Lee Kachung's back. Remember, she is supposed to be, he, he's in charge of the, of the military. He's in charge of the security apparatus of China uh, and the police. He is not in charge of the economy. And yet he went around Lee entirely and met with most of the major business tycoons in China and was advising them on what they should be doing, which is, you know, probably supposed to be a red line. Yeah. And and then also, not only did he do this, but this was publicized in the People's Daily, the official uh, CCP newspaper of China. So she not only stepped on Li Keqiang's toes, but then he put, he put out, you know, in a big, bald statement, hey, look, everyone in China, I'm stepping on the, the economy minister's toes right now. Aren't I so cool? Yeah, or it's <laughs> just like a really subtle pushing him to the side, because again, they, they like to make it seem that the party is like entirely together, although there has been another, yet another break from tradition involving Xi Jinping and current punching bag Li Keqiang along those very same lines. So another great example of Xi Jinping marginalizing current punching bag Li Keqiang occurred at what's known as the executive leadership retreat in Beidaiha in China. A bunch of the top brass of Chinese officials were getting together to celebrate a step towards uh, creating their own GPS system to rival the United States. This is this is a little technical, but GPS is actually a entirely American technology and given its importance in all manner of technologies, um, especially given all the talk of decoupling going on with China, China sees it as a strategic initiative to implement their own GPS system. So with, with that um, background, uh, you know, everyone was getting together to congratulate themselves on, on what a great job they did. And the presenter gets, to, you know, has been reading off a list of name and names and gets to Xi Jinping. And after he says Xi Jinping, Xi stands up you know, receives applause, clap, 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 turns around, takes a bow, etc. It's this great momentous occasion for Xi. He's really happy. He did such a great job, etc. Um, right after that is current punching bag Lee Kachung. And as the presenter reads Lee's name, Lee is standing up about to do exactly the same thing as Xi, you know, take a bow, receive applause, all that stuff. And the presenter just immediately cuts to the next name. So, so current punching bag Lee Kachung is like halfway standing up and just looks like a fool in front of everyone. And again, this incident is broadcast on national television. So all of this people of China can see Lee looking like a fool. Yeah, that implies a lot of intentionality. The fact that they were willing to discard that veneer of party unity uh, to undermine Li Keqiang. And you, and you, you like, the room, they, they, they started to applaud. You could tell, like, this, this like, it, it would not have been unusual for the number two person in the country to receive applause. And yet, yeah, um, only... Yeah. <laughs> so, like, and how do we know it was she? How do, how do we know that she ordered this? Well, because Li Keqiang <laughs> is the number two person in the country, so a little bit of simple math will tell you that someone more influential than him had to give the order, and that leaves you with one person. Yeah, what's, what's less than two but more than zero? <laughs> Whole numbers only, please. Um, yeah, so it, it's a lot of stuff like this that really shows how Xi is blazing ahead and really consolidating his power, you know, rather than being content to let other members of his party manage the economy, for instance, he wants to take that under his leadership as well. Again, solidifying control in a manner that hasn't been seen da, 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 since Mao. And yet it would be inaccurate to suggest that she doesn't have any obstacles left. So he has a, a strong base of factional support the victims of his purge is now, I think, total over a million people, which 
even in a country with 1.4 billion like China, that is an insane amount of pop up. That is a, that is a lot of political enemies to purge over a million people. Just let that sink in. That is larger than most cities within the United States. Yeah, it includes the entirety of Toad in the Hole, Jiang Zemin's extra extra legal super secret police force that he created to persecute Falun Gong back in the day. So like that old secret Gestapo ring, they've been completely disbanded. Yeah, it, it, it's just worth noting that all the people who are being sacked here are not all of them are from Jiang Zemin's faction, but a lot of them are because he's still uh, maybe the, you could argue, the second most powerful person in the country and remains a threat with sufficient clout. The guy could n- nominate further opposition members to the standing committee who could hamper Xi in his efforts to do whatever it is he's trying to do. Yeah, and as a uh, another example to drive home how powerful Toad in the Hole Jiang Zemin still is in China today, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but there's a term, Toad Worship. This is going on within Chinese social media to display affection, saying, oh, you know, Toad... It's like they're to lionizing say, him, basically. Yeah, exactly. To say, oh, you know, President Toad, essentially, you know, again, again, accounting for translation and everything. Oh, you know, wasn't it great when we had President Toad leading us? Things, you know, things were so good. And if you are saying that a past leader was doing so good and you're looking back fondly on that, that, like, that means the, the implication thereof is that things are not going very well today. So as a result, just like Winnie the Pooh is banned in China now, so is uh, Toad Worship. Yeah, it's a censored term on Chinese internet. You can't search for toad worship anymore, uh, because yeah, no, it's 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 a tongue-in-cheek jab at the current leader because you can't make direct jabs at the current leader in China. You really never have been able to, um, if you're unless you're like within the Politburo itself. So uh, she has been getting a lot of kickback lately, especially in the year 2020 with the fallout from coronavirus. Um, his more assertive foreign policy that I would argue is backfiring pretty strongly now. They're being isolated diplomatically. Uh, And most importantly, uh, the recent wave of American sanctions have been directly targeting CCP officials, especially the ones involved in the Hong Kong crackdowns. This is doing things like freezing their money overseas, uh, preventing them or their family members from entering the United States and attending university. Yeah, exactly. No, and this is important because... Again, hopefully we've driven home that leadership at the top is far from guaranteed within China. And as the U.S. institutes these sanctions, it angers the base of support that Xi would otherwise need behind him or at the very least indifferent to him. And having the U.S. um, make all of these members of the CCP unhappy significantly increases Xi's risk of political instability targeting him. Yeah, so with all these anecdotes out of the way, that brings us to the close of today's episode. It's been a little bit more scattershot than ones in the past, but we're dealing with much less real factual information than previously and more anecdotal stories that serve to illustrate a point. Um, So hopefully what we've been able to drive home today is that power within the CCP or China writ large is very amorphous, not concentrated in one place, and has a real Game of Thrones, House of Cards, whatever analogy you want to use, type element to it, where in order to determine who gets to wield the reins of power wherever they might lie, which, again, might not actually be in the presidency of China, might not be in the general secretariat of the CCP. So with with all that said, uh, we want to remind our listeners that we are doing a mailbag for this series. You can email us any questions you have related to China at thesynopsispodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is thesynopsispodcast at gmail.com. No spaces, no periods, etc. Um, if you have an interesting question that we think deserves an answer, we will get to it on air. Once again, we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to the Synopsis Podcast today. I'm Michael. 
And I'm Sam. And until next time, remember, nothing is to be feared, only understood. The Synopsis Podcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Produced by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach.